welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Instagram at podcastinglight, we tweet at podcastinglight, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the show, we are back with more of our interview with Tony Benia of B&W Rigging. Tony, this is, in fact, a lighting show, so let's talk about some lighting stuff. Oh, yeah. What do you wish lighting people knew about rigging, especially at the level you're operating? Things that, from a rigging perspective, that I wish more... Because, you know, not all everybody, not all designers, there are some excellent designers out there that consider rigging in their narrative and make my job easy. But sometimes they make it too easy, and they sacrifice their their artistic integrity, their input, what they want to express, right? So one of the things I always try to, with everyone, not only lighting guys, um, don't let the rigging or where the rigging needs to go dictate where you want your lights to go, right? Or like audio or any other stuff. But I find it more with lighting because they try to make it easier. And yeah, you have to work within budgets and constraints. But I think like, the first run at things you want to, I try to get designers, let me think about the rigging and how to get that position there for you. than worrying too much about it yourself, right. As the designer, because I don't want, that shouldn't be an issue driving your decision-making about the integrity of your lights. Right. Well, that's fair. So don't think too hard about the how at first. Yeah. Think about the what first. Yeah. Be reasonable to like when I come back and say, we can do that, but it's going to take like three days to make that position. Can you move it six feet to your right? Because we'll, we'll get that conversation going and be, have an open conversation to that and be willing to like, you know, manipulate and have some understanding about that as well. Don't be locked into like, it has to go like right there, but sometimes it does, you know, like if you have that key light that needs to be like center, center of everything and the angle of the light, the beam of the light is part of the look. It has to be there. We'll get it there. You know, don't let that limit your vision. Right. And get your trust tool in Vectorworks at least to like represent the majority of trust out there. Instead of just being like two feet, some designers, they just start throwing trust in the drawing. It's like two (laughs) two feet trust. And I'm like, it doesn't even really exist, (laughs) you know, and that extra like four inches, you know, that from 20 inch, it it makes a difference when we're laying stuff out, like on jobs, you know, if it's just one stick of trust in the middle of like a big field of nothing. Yeah, that's fine. But, you know, if you got your trust tool going the right size to begin with and, and the right dimensions, that, that helps overall, especially when we get into grids and layers and and dealing with a lot of like air traffic control. Something also, integrity of trust, you know, it's funny how often I come back to lighting designers and I change it from 20 inch trust to 12 inch. It doesn't always have to be 20 inch trust. And most lighting designers are cool with that. They just, they don't. They don't even realize that it's a choice per se. I found over the years that typically your typical spans of what we need to suspend, be it lighting like a UDL of lights across a stick of truss, 12 inch can handle it, you know, 80% of the time, 12 inch is fine. But sometimes people get stuck in their head. This is really heavy. It needs to be the big truss. And they, they go with that. And that just costs more. 
costs more like the rent costs more to put in a truck. It's more, you know, more trucking because you're just trucking air, you know? So that's something that I find myself doing a lot. And I'm not saying like laying designers to think of all that stuff because it does have to do with capacity and whatnot, but just uh, to be cognizant of the size of the trust that you're throwing down on the paper, because some riggers will take it as gospel and be like, it has to be 30 inch trust, or we have to find that 24 inch trust. That's what they want. Um, and that's a, that's a conversation on both ends. You know, that's getting production riggers to ask the question and not just take it as like finite that this is what it is in the drawing and the designers to be like understanding to make, maybe make a note and be like, this can be whatever trust you want just to uh, put that out there. Cause um, it saves a lot. It saves a lot of money on jobs. Like when you can, you know, use a longer span with it and it's being a smaller style truss for longer spans, you don't need as many points because now you're not loading all that truss weight. You'll get more lighting instruments if you use a smaller truss. I find that in fashion all the time. They want to roll in with a lot of the lighting guys. They want to roll in with pre-rig all the time. And I get it. It saves a lot of time uh, on site. And I always want to do that too. But what it also does is increase the load. And there's several venues that we'll go into, and they just don't have the capacity in the building to float a rig uh, of the size that the designer wants. And it's like, well, we could float that many lights, but we need to use 12-inch truss. If you're going to put it on pre-rig, you have to cut 12 lights because that's it's a huge difference. It's something to be cognizant of like while you're designing, you know, th- those ask those questions, you know, what, you know, you don't have to be a rigger, but know that these are options. And these are things that like, as a rigger, like, I don't want to have to come back to you and say, you have to cut this many lights because we don't have enough capacity in the building. Right. So I try to let, let me worry about how the lights are being suspended there. Right. And that'll be dictated by the budget and about the amount of time we have to get in the building and all the other things in that algorithm of production that we do, you know, but uh, just be cognizant of those things and, and and be a part of that conversation, right? Because it can save immense amount of time and immense amount of money if we think those things through that way. So in addition to those things, what are some other things that lighting folks should try and learn more about and where can they get that information? Talk to the riggers, you know, um, the information just out there. Be familiar with your lighting vendor and the styles of trust that they have. Like there's like there's like vendors out there. Sometimes I'm like, I can't, they, they, they own that? Holy shit, that's great. You know, there's more and more styles of trust out there, you know, stuff that's doing higher capacity for longer spans, lighter weight. But sometimes that shit's real heavy too. Like the difference between 16 inch trust and 20 inch trust, they, you know, you can get the kind of the same amount of capacity and it's some of the 16 inch trust is heavier than 20 inch trust. But you're going to save a little bit more on trucking because uh, you can fit more 16-inch trusses in a truck than 20-inch. So there's all those things that play into that part of production rigging. Or like Tyler GT is heavy, and so it's a matter of where can that weight be sacrificed? Yeah, exactly. Like Because it depends on your hang. Like If you're going to put one lighting instrument every 10 to 12 feet, bring some 12-inch. Don't pre-rig that because you're just wasting money and time and weight. Right. I could we could float that all on quarter tons instead of bringing in one ton motors for the spans, you know, so do a hemp pick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right off the end. Oh, it's bending. I just put a rope on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
as far as like learning it, you know, a lot of it is experience. Most of it is just like, I've noticed when I get on a job, it takes a lot of, pardon the pun, weight off the shoulders of the lighting designers. Over the years, like I'll get on a job and I get a lot of, thank God you're on this job, Tony, because it's like, uh, I just don't want to even think about the motor package, you know, be it the, the master electrician or the lighting designer, you know, it takes, there's so much information that you have to retain as a lighting designer or a master electrician or an audio lead, like that is just dedicated to your discipline to like throw the rigging details on top of that. It's like, you're asking too much of people at that point. You know, there's a reason, you know, especially when it, when it gets into larger scale jobs, I get it. You know, you're floating four sticks of trust. Two of them are cable bridges. You know, it doesn't take a production rigger to do that, but be cognizant of those choices. Right. And, um, you know, just look at some of the load charts of things, you know, but a lot of times you're going to end up with just what the lighting vendor has. You know, you won't have the luxury to be able to choose the exact best tool uh, for the job. You know, but there are tools dedicated to certain jobs. You know, that's why there's so many different styles of trust these days. It gets very specific. It, it is interesting that both lighting and rigging have this sort of problem of, oh, well, there's there's the perfect fixture for the problem I'm trying to solve, but the vendor doesn't have it. Yeah. And they're not going to buy it. And, oh, this is the perfect either trust or motor or hardware to solve this problem, but the vendor doesn't have it and they're not going to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons I got BMW started, you know, so that I could yeah. have the best tool for the job, you know, and that's why like my financial peeps get on my case all the time because we don't really make any money. We just buy shit. That's all we do. We just, <laughs> we just keep buying crap, you know, because it's like, oh, this is perfect for this thing and we're going to get it and we'll have it. At least we have it, but we'll use it like twice a year. But we're in that niche of like, yeah, we store it so we have it twice a year because nothing else is going to do that job. And we have that job twice a year, you know, and then somebody will come up with that and we might not be doing that job, but at least they could rent it from us. So that's become kind of like, you know, the eclectic pieces of rigging hardware that you can rent. And that's what got us like really involved with mod trust as well. Now that I've seen what mod trust can do, not just for the things that you construct, but also the way it can help lighting out. Uh, tell me more about that and why people should be asking their vendors to have the stuff. Well, mod trust is a tough sell on the lighting end because the industry is revolved around a truss cord, a pipe, you know, to hang your lighting instrument on a pipe. Mod trust, you have to put an adapter onto the mod trust to then get your pipe there to do your position. So it tends to create a little bit of a debacle in that sense. Structurally wise, there's a lot of pros to mod trust especially in like how it goes together and then in the integrity of it, doing mother grid stuff, cable, pitching trust, the connection points of it, it, it has like unlimited possibilities to it. So there's a lot of pros in the sense of like the actual structure. And, you know, in the lighting world, sometimes that's part of your conversation is that you're designing a rig to look cool as well as like the lights on it to make the environment look cool. You know, so mod trust can lend itself to that end as well. Well, I was also thinking about those super low profile truss towers you can do with it. So it's not this big 12 inch by 12 inch brick. It's this slimline little little stem that has the same load capacity. Yeah, you know, the, the six inch and the three inch mod truss, when you're definitely when you get into towers, right? And into vertical challenges of your design, 
it's definitely a, a great product for that as well as like in the grid work or like if you're dealing in a building with really low ceilings and every inch matters you can get a good amount of capacity out of six inch truss and it allows you to get above sprinklers and like through beams a 12 inch typical truss you can't even do you know so it gets you structure there and then you know there's a lot of lights that just can bolt directly to it so it's a little more time consuming from the lighting angle of uh use but it will get your positions where you need them and then you're not sacrificing the look of your lighting in a job because you're getting the position that you want right so Montrose definitely has opened up a lot of doors that way, especially like just lighting us from the other genres of our industry. You know, Montrose structurally has really opened a lot of doors. There's stuff that we've accomplished that we would have never have been able to do with the standardized trust that's out there. But we integrate both. I, like I said earlier, like it's about using the best tool for the job, right? And sometimes Montrose isn't it, and it's going to be 12 inch standard. Or it's going to be 12-inch core, like Tomcat's product with like a thicker bolt plate. Or you need spigoted, and you can get 12-inch spigoted, and that's going to run you the same load charts approximately as 20-inch bolted. You know, But you get smaller a smaller profile. It might be the same weight because the thickness of the cord is thicker than the 20-inch you know, three sixteenths to eighth inch. You know, so the weight ends up about the same. So there, there's all these different things within truss that dictate what the best use for it is. How do you feel most comfortable about rigging and lighting collaborating? Like how, how, what's the best way for them to collaborate? And when should lighting be starting the conversation with you? From day one, <laughs> I would love to be a part. I don't, I feel sometimes I get placed in positions that I could have helped out way more if I was brought in earlier in the conversation, just to help guide us to the final result easier. Right. Because at the end of the day, I'm dealing with the physics of the world and the physics of the venue. And I, you know, sometimes I get brought in late in the conversation and they go down a road that I have to veto, which sucks. I don't like saying no. You know, you mean uh, that thing where you get the email where you're where you're looped in on an email and there's 40 emails in the chain before it and you're just reading through all of them. And it's like anywhere in here, I could have stepped in and said something. Yeah. And we would have cut out like the three days of emails you guys already had trying to get to a solution that to me was like, right, because it's such a rigging specific kind of like, look, we'll just do this and put it here. And, you know, just getting the conversation started earlier. And I know sometimes I, th I feel like a fear of that is budget. They don't want to bring in a guy too soon because they're going to start their clock like it's a lawyer, like every 15 minute increments, like every second of my time. And that's not how I roll, at least anyway. And the guys that work for me and, and that work with us and we're here to help. My whole job is to help because I am as a rigger, nobody, no client wants to see you rigging. They want the video wall. They want the lighting rig. They want the audio. They don't want to see the suspended stuff. They don't want the rigging. You know, it's just something they have to have. So I, at the end of the day, production riggers are vendors of other vendors, right? We're not, we're, we're, I'm rarely contacted directly with the production company or end client. I get brought in later after all the design stuff is done and which is cool. But I've, I've found a lot of times that like design, the best designs are driven by the utility of the space, 
right? Working with the space instead of just trying to do whatever you want, right? Because then you're forcing, when you try to force a building or force a theater to do something that it just can't really do easily, you're just exasperating a problem. That if you can get that utility into your design early, it will just lead to a much better end product, a lot better for both the client's budget and the vision of the designer. And I feel like my background in visual arts, in sculpture, is what kind of helped me with that vocabulary to talk to the designers about that. And the sooner I get brought in on it, the sooner we can start to deal with those problems. You know, And then it becomes easier to surmount those problems and get what you really want out of it because you've given it more time. You know, it all boils down to time at the end of the day. You know, we can, we can solve any problem if we have enough time. Uh, you need it cheaper, give it more time. Then two guys can take like, you know, a week to get the pre-rig done that you'd have to go in in one day with like 20. You know, there, there's those kind of things that can help out. We rarely get that luxury of time, you know, and that's why things cost more. Yeah. It's the same as like with trucking. It still dumbfounds me sometimes. Like I have to explain why the trucking costs so much. And it's because you want it at 8.30 a.m. If you can do it to a range, we'll call UPS and they'll get it to you sometime between 6 and 10. So if you can have your crew hang out between the hours of 6 and 10 to receive it, that's cool. But if you want it at 8.30, it's just going to cost a little more because you have dedicated yeah. trucking and they have to leave three hours early to make sure they're there a half hour early. You know, so the, the production people that have been around, they get it, you know, but when you're dealing with like younger companies and they're, and they're really trying hard to make their budgets work and to give it their all to the clients, there's just sometimes those costs that just are inherent that you have to like understand why. Speaking of costs that are inherent to a thing that you've decided to do, I know you mentioned that you're a preferred rigging vendor at the shed. That's part of Hudson Yards, but I kind of want to ask you about how you ended up as the preferred vendor and what that giant project you were doing before it was even finished was. How did you end up hoisting giant spindles up the side of a building? <laughs> yeah, well, we weren't on the outside of the building too much. Um, we did some stuff on the roof. It goes back to while the building was under construction. Mark Warren, who is the uh, current director of production there, him and I go pretty far back doing gigs. And when he got wrangled into being like a part of the production team that was going to take over the shed, this was like two years before the completion of the shed while it was under construction. Mark and I would occasionally chat about the rigging that would happen there. I want to clarify, like we're not the preferred rigging vendor, but we help out there a lot. But Mark and I would chat and then it turned into the the building initially wasn't designed as a it was always designed as a building for the arts it was more of a visual arts um not a performance based arts and then as they designed it more and more and got into it they were like we can do really large scale events and like do these art happenings and some pr more performance based art things art happenings and activations so when they designed it like the MacArthur Court area the part that actually travels over the building. And if you're not familiar with the shed, you should look it up because it's one of the most unique buildings in the world. It's got four stories, but you know each story is like two stories tall. So it's kind of more like an eight-story building that has a shell over the top of it. And that shell can be driven to an outbound position to create 
a big open space that's 112 feet tall, 130 wide, and about 130, 150 deep. Just big open space with an immense amount of capacity to hang off of. Um, so it, it'll, it lends itself to the vertical world. It's very interesting, right? Um, and they designed it transparent. So the walls itself on this shell that travels are big balloons, allowing the light of the city to come through and the daylight and the nighttime ambiance. But um, after they started building it, they kind of realized that they need a solution to make it turn dark. They kind of, you know, didn't really put a lot of thought. They knew it would have to go dark, but like they didn't really put a lot of thought into what that meant. And um, it meant a lot, like trying to make it dark and also now acoustically sound. So that sound doesn't escape the building because, you know, they had to do this balloon kind of transparency in a lot of respects, because like if it was fixed glass, it wasn't very cost effective because they'd all have to be rubber mounted because the building travels and you risk torquing something and cracking panes of glass all over the place. So the balloon solution was like a genius idea in that sense. But now we need acoustic buffering for the environment around the outside of the shed because, you know, we're going to put in shows in there. It's going to be really loud and it has to be really dark. So they went down the roll and bid it out to a bunch of companies. And this was like about two years into building the shed from what I understand a year or two into building the, the shed uh, that they started really embracing the idea of like shades and they tried to get a turnkey solution and a company that should remain nameless uh, got that solution and they went into R and Ding it after they were awarded it. They said they'd do it for X amount. And then after they R and D it for a bit, they discovered it would tr- was triple of what they said it would cost and the shed declined and terminated that contract. The former idea was like a cassette deck of like a garage door that would clink down the side of the internals of the building, down the big I-beams that create these bays within the building. That cassette deck took up a lot of space and trying to get that to move and work, it wasn't really happening. Um, It was a lot, it was really expensive, I guess, for that to happen. From what I understand is that some of the ownership of the shed knows some sailor type people and they got talking about yachts and about these really super yachts and the uh, the sales they use for that. So they got involved. They got this company, Doyle Sale, involved. And they, with uh, this other company, Persec and Wormfeld, which are these two really smart dudes in Brooklyn that design these um massive sailboats and massive marine structures they got them involved to create this concept of shades that kind of like a window shade just come down off of a drum uh, a mandrel that lives up in the grid that's a really interesting solution to a problem you know where it's almost like well where do we even start uh sales guys you make sales yeah <laughs> give them a call let's see what happens yeah you know but you know they deal with boats and they deal with installation and building boats they don't deal with buildings um, so after like through the years of design and they started like getting it really resolved, uh, the dudes that, you know, the company that was fabricating the shed, cause at the end of the day, the shed was fabricated in Italy and was put on a boat and brought here and bolted together like the shell, amazing feat of engineering. And these Italians, they were as precise as you could get. It was, it was a pleasure to work with those guys. It was incredible. 
But when they started trying to find an installation company to put in this new concept of shades, they were coming across challenges of like companies that didn't want anything to do with it. They didn't feel that they weren't confident that they could do it. So they'd either price themselves out of it or just decline it. And uh, Mark Warren, who I was talking with, put my name in the hat and B&W to go see what they had, see what we could offer to help them out. And I went in and sat down with the construction management firm and we discussed the project at length, you know, showed, showed me a bunch of drawings and I had some concepts and we drew some stuff up and it entailed two things, not only just putting the shade up on the mandrel, but getting the mandrel up in the building. And uh, the mandrel is a 30 foot long tube of steel that weighs 8,000 pounds when it's all put together. Essentially, what you're saying is it's a 30 inch in diameter, 8,000 pound change order that they're suddenly looking down the barrel of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was years ago, from what I understand. You know, I got brought in so late in the project. To me, it was like, this is, oh, this is what you planned on doing the whole time. It wasn't until we were like halfway through the project that it was just like, oh, no, this was a, this changed. And, uh, and we were like, I was sitting in on conversations. They still were designing it while we were figuring out how to install it. Like these last, the brushes that are in the track and the acoustical effect of this and that and uh, the thickness of the shade. And because uh, the shade ended up being, it's like a, um, it's a neoprene on one side, carbon fiber shade on the outside with a PVC, like an ABS plastic plank. And they're like four inch planks of this going all the way up. And it's uh, like, they're a hundred feet tall. You know, the, the heavier, bigger ones are a hundred. The smaller ones are like 90 ish. They get down to about five feet from the floor and it's 112 feet up and they sit on top of the grid. So yeah. It's really big. Like the big ones were 14,000 pounds, the shades themselves, and the smaller ones were 9,000 pounds. So we, during that first conversation with the construction management firm, we were talking about getting the mandrels in position. And four of the mandrels live in this pocket on the east side of the building that you can't do a straight pickup to. And then the other 10 mandrels live up in the grid that you have a 32 inch tall hole basically to get the 30 inch steel drum through at 112 feet off the ground. So there was a, a lot of technicality. You know, it's tough to really describe it without seeing pictures, but it definitely was one of the most challenging rig scenarios that I got that I've been put across. And I pulled out like all the tricks and uh, came up with some new ones too uh, to get that job done. And it was such a privilege to work with such smart people. The architects and designers of this project were incredibly smart, too smart. There were times I had to, <laughs> like a, we would be in a meeting. There was one, there's two positions in trying to get the shades up and in place. Actually, there's four positions that the shed itself have these massive doors that are like 30 feet wide and they fly out like 20 feet. They weigh 35,000 pounds. Four of those doors don't function. They're on, the, they're on the south side of the building. But we still, in order to get the shade up to the track, we had to have those doors open. Um, they're still functioning doors. They just got uh, value engineered out of actually functioning because mm -hmm. it opened up to the high line side and didn't make any sense. You'd never open those doors anyway. So we still had to get it open. And these really smart architects and these engineers are all talking about how this, 
how to get the shade to go up into the track and get the door open and we'll build this custom big thing and the and because the diameter of the shade as it comes off the mandrel on the ground as it unravels itself unfurls and goes up into the tracks it changes diameter so it changes the pitch and the angle and because the shade itself is made out of carbon fiber which doesn't stretch and abs that doesn't bend very well you didn't want it to blow up forcing it into. So there was a circumference diameter we had to keep in unspooling. And so they would be like, all right, as it gets smaller, this device we'll make, we'll prop the door up and move this and force this thing this way and all this stuff. And it really took me going in it, not to give me any props on it or credit, but it was just kind of funny to see all these drawings and all this brain power going that one direction. And, and it really boiled down to like, yeah, but it's not like this thing's unfurling like you're pulling a roll of toilet paper. When it's unfurling, it's going like millimeter at a time. We can hit stop and then like move the box that's unfurling. <laughs> you know, we don't have to build this big contraption. We'll get the door open and then unfurl. And as it shrinks and the angle uh, that it comes off the roll to go into the track needs to change, we'll stop and we'll move the box that it's in. And we'll move it a little closer. And then we'll start again. And it was like, does it, it was a funny road that they went down to finding a solution that really was like that being on site and working that just kind of like, I'm just going to kick the box over and then we'll keep going. That was very interesting. It was a, it was a cool dynamic to be a part of the problem solving for some of these things, you know, and the lifts themselves were just like really challenging, interesting loads that we had to move three-dimensionally. You know, most of the time when you're dealing with rigging, it's just up or down. It's seldom side to side. And we were, the mandrels on the east side of the building, we had to pick up inside the building and then translate that to a third position, doing a three-point moving bridle to get it to another position, then do a transfer to an entire gantry system above that that we had to put holes through the roof to come down to the mandrel to pick it off in the precise location to execute the final lift up to the grid. Uh, and what that, those four weren't even going into the grid. They were going strictly like straight to the beam and making their connections in the air to the beams. So the rigging scenarios were uh, very interesting. It was a great project to work on. It was a privilege. It sounds amazing. How many different organizations and unions were involved? Well, it was all the trade unions. So it was typical construction kind of uh, stuff. But just for our part of it, we had to have three unions. It was borderline four, but we were able to have our 580, which is the decor steel iron workers, uh, handle their own movement of gear. Because a lot of times on construction sites, you need to have a separate union push your gear from wherever it gets delivered to where you're going to work. So uh, we dealt with 580, local 40, and local 14. Local 40 is steel iron workers, like straight up iron workers, mostly like erectors that, you know, put I-beam to I-beam, Bolton, big structures together. Local 14 is the operators union and they deal with anything electrical that hoists stuff, uh, whether it's a crane or an elevator or, you know, a motor with a button on it, which was interesting in that world because us in our stagehand unions, uh, riggers, do both. They make all the connections and they press the button for the motorized motor to haul stuff. Local 14 deals with all the motorized stuff. So it was funny to see the difference in uh, the local 40 and 580. They're, they're 
they're very similar unions, but the 580 guys deal with decor metalwork. And our job being as unique as it was kind of fell more in the 580 world. At the end of the day, though, we still needed to have a local 14 representative there to press the button for our motors, um, even though none of the locals had ever used any of the type of theatrical rigging equipment that we use that's standard in our industry, the eight-way, multiple motors moving in at once together off of one button. Like, they don't deal with that stuff. You know, uh, most of the time, the iron workers only rig off of manual chain hoist because there's no electricity, so they don't have to have a local 14 guy press a button, so they can rig it themselves. But when you're doing lifts that are 112 feet, you want a motor on that thing. <laughs> you got to press a button, yeah, right? So it was definitely like, that was one of the, that was the biggest construction job that I'd been a part of. So to have that minutia of detail, you know, even like, you know, the local 14 guys, they were also like the crane runners and they, they technically did all the, should have been doing all of the um, forklift work as well. Uh, but there's gray areas and the unions work together um, and they, they find a way where everybody gets to work. Uh, so it was cool. It was definitely a different way of working where we're used to more control over a schedule, right? Because when we have a deadline, it's a show, it has to happen, or the 3,000 people in the audience have to, they don't get to see the show. And they're not going to come back the next day, right? Yeah. So you have to be ready for that show. Um, so there's more leniency in the sense of how to build a production schedule and roll stuff off trucks in different departments working in unison. And if it's going to take you four hours, we'll start you four hours earlier than this crew. And in that construction world, that didn't happen. You know, it was, there were specific times and according to the contract in accordance to the contract that you had to start your call. You couldn't start at 10 AM. You had to start at seven period, you know? Uh, so that was an interesting way of doing work as well, a change of what I was used to in the years that I've been dealing with, you know, unions and whatnot. So are there any other projects you'd want to talk about? We've done like so many different jobs over the years. It's been funny during this time now that we've had without work, reflecting about how you got here and where the, the industry's going and the type of jobs you've done. And it's been pretty cool to go back through some of my records and go back and see some of the drawings. Like we've done so many jobs, like from a unique building or like a building like the American Stock Exchange, where nothing's ever flown in the air in that building and being a part of the engineering of trying to figure out how much additional load a building can take to like outdoor structures like that Aspen job or some of the other unique structures we've done for outdoor events. I, I feel like that's all we get, you know, and that, those are the things that I, that I really enjoy working on. You know, those things are really make me think how to accomplish. And it's one of the things like, it's been really cool about being a part of BMW at this point of, of my position at BMW, being able to like, I have R and D projects, you know, there's like, rigging solu solutions to help us rig easier or better like things i've always hated about the industry that like there's a better way to do this or st new stuff that's come up that's just like the use of ballast outside and you know manipulating that ballast and trying to come up with better ways to transport it and move it in and out of buildings designing different carts and different methods and just thinking uh, about those challenges in the industry that some people just throw their hands up and accept 
And uh, I don't accept no for a solution. You know, it's like there, there's going to be a way. We'll figure out a way, right? Well, tell me about that, because I know you, this, there is definitely some equipment you've innovated. You know, it sounded like you were starting to talk about the G-Block dolly you created. Tell me about that. To me, it's nothing crazy. The smaller G-Blocks, not the big ones. The big ones, it doesn't make sense to really have a cart for those, because you're they're too big. You, you need, like, a forklift to move it around. It's the fine-tuning uh, those bigger ones into position that we're, we're working on uh, some different aspects for those. But the carts for the medium-sized ones... The thousand pound blocks, you know, thousand pounds sounds heavy, but really it isn't, you know, lift gates can handle it. So if a lift gate can handle it, you should be able to roll it in and out of a truck. So that got us like going down the road of like, all right, we need to be able to get this on and off our trucks with lift gates. There's gotta be a way. So we, we went through a different, a couple different renditions of a cart for those things. So you don't need a forklift, right? Um, and we ended up with this just like mini goalpost of steel on casters that's two feet wide, three foot something tall. And we come down on top of it with a two inch screw, like a two inch bolt. And we use that to pick up. We use a screw gear. You know, basic engineering solves most problems, you know, in physics. They built the pyramid with just levers, really. <laughs> you know, le- levers, the sled you know, going up, a you know, wedges, you know, those things, those simple tools. It's just, it's easier in this day and age with the technology that we have to fabricate things, you know, the tools are better to fabricate. So steel has become more manipulable, right? It's, you know, at the end of the day, steel is malleable, you know, it's got a, a but the, the innovations in the technology and the welders and in the cutting tools, it's become faster and easier to, fabricate and steel um so it lets you like trial and error things and r&d stuff easier and so we you know we developed a card to be able to shuttle around the mini and micro g blocks which have become like a staple of ballast because they're first they're like in essence the legal way to do shit um not to say that like water ballast or sandbags are not legal but in terms of leaking or easily like losing the ballast um they don't really meet an osha code that way from my understanding that's why everything needs to be like concrete or steel for ballast in most instances and if you are going to use some kind of liquid be it sand or or water you know because at the end of the day sand is still considered like viscous um you have to have a very regimented inspection schedule if you're going to use water ballast of that type. And nobody really applies themselves to that when we do stuff like that, when I've seen that done, which is not awesome, right? But uh, that's why I feel like G-Blocks have, have become a cornerstone to structural builds. You know, Gallagher has a patent on that block. So it's like their patent covers any type of bolting to ballast. So in essence, any type of ballast that you bolt to is covered underneath their patent. Uh, you know, it's just kind of funny how, like, we all talked about, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have, like, you know, a really heavy base plate we just bolt this thing to or, like, a block to bolt to. And, you know, Gallagher did it, and uh, they've been punching them out. And um, it's become, like, a staple to, like, the industry for doing it. But they're tough to work with, you know, lining up the bolt holes. So, you know, we've been trying to figure out better ways to make that work because that's what we we do it every gig. You know, every gig we do, you need some kind of structural base when we're building structures. You know, you need a structural honking heavy thing to counteract. And then 
we get into the lighter versions of the G blocks, we actually fly them as our ballast. And they're great because you can literally, you know, the bolt pattern's there. You can grapple it right to a stick of truss. So we float a stick of truss, land the on top of the G block, grapple it to it, and then fly it up. And there's our flown ballast. So now we can do cantilevered truss systems to be able to, to get to point positions outside the realm of like your last part of the grid or your last opportunity in the building. And that's why like, I want to express to lighting designers and other designers that don't concern yourself as much with limitations of how to get the position as to where you need your positions to be. And then we'll start talking about how to get that position. And it'll either be just not conceivable either in the budget or in the time. You know, at the end of the day, you know, you could always like build something that'll work, but it's just really about how much time and money goes into that. And what's the value of that position? What's some other uh, stuff you've uh, developed based on, here's a need, there's no product like it, I need something to do this? Yeah, I mean, we have these master link hook baskets that don't require shackles to make, but they're just, they're, it's, I don't see it necessarily as innovation or whatever. There's other companies that have done it, but we embrace it. Your typical basket is two shackles and a five-foot piece of steel, right? And then some burlap. So if you combined all that together into one cohesive thing, instead of being those four components, if you swage your steel directly to a master link, and then on the other end of that piece of steel wire rope, you swage it to a latched hook, you've now like eliminated having pins loose in the air from your shackles or having to open up a shackle and close it in the air. You can just clip it and go. And then you can get rid of the burlap by like putting a sleeve or some kind of padding sewn to that steel wire rope. And I've seen that, you know, I've seen it around. I've never seen it with a master link. You know, the most I've seen other companies go down that road have been like, you know, taking a piece of fire hose to the steel wire rope basket and, and Nyko pressing or swaging the thimble of one end of that five foot steel to a hook. And then you still have the shackle and then the hook goes around. So you don't have any open shackles in the air. And that's good. We took it a step further and put a master link on it. And it's just kind of, it's funny because it saves so much time and it's such a safer way of doing it. You'd think like, this is the only way that we should do this. And it is so much better, but it's hard to get big box companies to invest in that because now they only have this one thing that does one thing only. When you could do with the shackles, you do it for everything. So you have a bin of shackles and sometimes you only need five shackles for this gig and you need 30 shackles for another thing on the gig and, you know, to do all the same stuff. So it's a lot more interchangeable Um, because to make that wire rope latched hook master link basket, that's like an expensive piece of gear where you can buy these couple of things and it's cheaper the big box places will go with the cheaper route. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if it's safer or easier for the production guys to use. It's this is uh, for making baskets. Like you can do it either way. So that's, that's what you get. You get a little bit more out of when you come to like a, a rigging company that cares about that shit. Cause on the production end of it, it will take less time for your upriggers to rig a show. I mean, we've cut hours off of load ins just because when we have, 200 connections to make in the air and it takes you two minutes to make a connection instead of 10 that's a lot of time you save right yeah both in like and i'm saying and i'm thinking of in the sense of that that 10 minutes is like the time it takes to get the gear out boxes to get it to the bot get to the point location to get that steel basket built out and then to have it pulled and have it made in the air like you condense all that time to literally going to a box and pulling one piece of gear out of a box 
walking over and clipping it to the steel, to the hook of the motor, and then being able to pull the point. You're cutting all that time out. And then the back end of that, you're cutting out the time it takes to do your safety check, right? Because now you're not looking for every little shackle turned the wrong way or not closed all the way or, or uh, all those things. You can, you can see your points being correctly mounted to the, attached to the building. Um, much quicker and, and there's less room for error. Uh, the, pa- the burlap isn't folded enough or whatever things that would be wrong with the typical point. It's all done already. I don't want to say like we invented that. We didn't. We just took it an extra step and embraced it. And we embraced it like much earlier. There's a company now in California, Killswitch. They actually put a patent on that system. Oh. Yeah, which is kind of funny because they were, it's going to be a tough patent for them to enforce because like we started making those things before I was even a company. We, I had those things on tour with me. So it's not necessarily like the newest piece of technology because at the end of the day, rigging is like one of the older you're not gonna there's no new microprocessor that's gonna make rigging go better <laughs> at the end of the day it's still like just shackles and steel you know there's different doohickeys and things that make it easier or combining the things like the way this steel basket that i'm talking about that we started using a while back but i've had those in inventory for 12 10 12 years now and these guys came out with it last year and they put a patent on it and it's only like two years old so I don't know how enforceable that patent is, you know, because the way the patents are written, it's about first to invent, not first to patent. Um, But still, it's great to see companies out there trying to find a better way, right? Yeah. It's fucking awesome. I mean, so clearly one of your key philosophies is, you know, just because we've always done it this way, it doesn't mean we should keep doing that way. You know, we can keep innovating even in an industry that doesn't necessarily move that quickly because it isn't technology-based. Yeah. What are some other key philosophies of yours? There's a lot of expressions I use. One of the early on ones uh, was quit or conform, which became like kind of a, a motto amongst the fellas because like we're, I don't give up on anyone and I don't give up, right? So even if it's someone in trouble or needing help or, you know, they want to do it their way and it's like, yeah, but your way is not the way that we need to have it done. It might work, but we want it this way because there's a couple extra things you don't know about, or, you know, it's just like certain things that we need to have happen. And it's not that we're not, that I'm not open to new thoughts and new ways of doing things, but sometimes you just got to like, it's either you're going to, you're going to step into how we do things here, or you're going to step away. So you're either going to conform or you're going to quit, right? But I'm not going to give up on you, right? Like I'm never, I, I don't believe I've really fired anyone or thrown anyone off a job. You know, I've always worked with them to try to see it from their point of view and try to get them to work with us, right? But I will ride them to do it the correct way because there's lives on the line at the end of the day. You know, we're, we deal a lot with safety and with, you know, reasons of why to do things, you know, so it's quit or conform. Uh, you also mentioned, while we were talking about the proper needs for ballast, whether or not those things were actually OSHA compliant. And me and a lot of other people that work in the business have started getting OSHA 30 certifications. Who actually needs that currently, and do you think that need is going to expand? I think it's going to expand. In essence, it's it depends on how you want to look like. I, I've had this argument, not argument, but this discussion about 
what a worksite is technically classified as and and uh, in what we do, because what we do is not typical construction, but it is installation. So from the time we crack a truck till when we get into, a lot of times it's like they draw the line at the lighting focus. Until that starts happening or we start doing rehearsals, it's considered a job site and it's an install and you need to have hard hats and follow all the OSHA rules and regulations that way in that respecting that railings, steel toe, all that jazz. It's tough to get the culture of stagehands in some cities and some locales to really embrace that. Um, So there's definitely like different points of view on that. OSHA 30 was designed around just like the heads, like guys in charge to have, but New York state and New York city is, is moving it down the line that everyone on a job site would need it. Like when we were working at the shed, everyone, including the designers, architects, anyone that was walking around on that site needed to have their OSHA 30. That's what they, they did. And they didn't, it wasn't a government thing because the government was still like on OSHA 10. You need to have at least OSHA 10 to do all that. Um, And then they said, as of January 1st, you're going to need to have your OSHA 30. Then they pushed that back to June. And I think it's now installed as like a requirement um, because that was like two years ago. It finally became a thing for everyone in November last year, I think. Yeah. So certainly um, it's not hard to get. You just got to be patient, really. You got to, you know, you can do it online and get it. And I think it's important that everyone has it. Um, also even expanding that down to the ETCP, the entertainment training certification program. I think that's an incredibly valuable certification to have under your belt in our industry. Um, and I understand the perspective of perhaps older school dudes and how young people out of college can get their ETCP and never pull a point in their life. They can't really. They can't really, as long as, uh, the ETCP board follows up and holds true to the work experience you have to have prior to taking the test Yeah, and checking and being vigilant and make sure everybody's saying the truth. And as long as that holds true, then it will, it still puts a certain amount of experience individuals need to have before they can properly take that test and get their ETCP certification, which means a certain amount of experience they need to have physically on site working as well as the bookend of it and knowing the equations and knowing the whys to get your ETCP. And uh, at the end of the day, if someone goes through the rigors of getting their ETCP, there's a certain amount of respect you should have for that individual because it is not an easy exam. It is not an easy test to take. And you do need to know what's up. Uh, Doesn't mean that after you take it, like 10 years later, if you've never rigged again after you get it, you're going to be performing all your equations perfectly or pulling points, whatever. You're going to have a lot of war stories, but like you didn't, you may have not kept up on it. And that's why there's recertification every five years. You need to, you know, validate that you've been consistently working in it. So I think it's a very good program and it shows people that care about our industry. The people that get it are passionate about the job, right? Yeah. And that goes a long way in my book. What are some good resources for rigging training? I know earlier we talked about, you know, if lighting folks want to learn more about rigging, but if you want to seriously do training, whether that's to make a career change or just to step up, what can you do? There's a bunch of rigging seminars. You go to LDI, there's always excellent seminars and groups uh, speaking. There's a lot of good speakers there. The rigging symposium 
is a great one. This was to be their third year. It got canceled because of the COVID. But hopefully next year we'll be able to get that going. They normally follow the schedule of USITT. And that's a great one to get just the gamut of what's going on in the industry rigging-wise. If you want a rigging-specific class or seminar, there's a rigging school in Vegas that Eric Rouse, uh, he's from Chicago Fly House. Uh, he manages that. It's called Entertainment Project Services. Of course, there's the traveling seminars, or if you want to do them on demand, you know, have them come teach or whatever. Uh, Ethan Gilson, he's a great guy. He has a company, Entertainment Rigging Services. And of course, Bill Sapsis, he's actually doing free seminars via their web portal at sapsis.com. And for ModTrust, if you want to learn more about ModTrust, which I seem to appreciate a lot of, uh, Patrick Santini, he does a seminar at his headquarters in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. It's a pretty cool place because it was a former Elks club and they have a bowling alley in the basement. So it makes for a pretty good time going to classes there. That sounds like fun. Yeah. And, you know, then there's the classic mountain productions. Uh, They've been doing rigging school and Tomcat has been doing a rigging school forever. So the Tomcat hoist and rigging school. It's a great program. We were there at the same time. I did the basic course while you did the advanced course. Oh, yeah, that's right. You were there, too. That was uh, that was a good time out there. When I've come to you with issues or problems, whether those were professionally or personally, you've always been able to kind of like see what they really are and respond with clarity. And there's a lot of people who were scared and unemployed and suffering because of the shutdown and because of the virus. What are some things that you would say to them as they as they feel those things? I keep a very positive outlook on things simply because historically we've gotten through these things, you know, and this virus is something that, yeah, it's it's putting a real damper pretty much to like a standstill in our industry. But there are smart, innovative people out there and where there's a will, there's a way and people will find a way to make things happen. And so it's going to take a while. And again, like the resources aren't going anywhere, right? The venues that we do these shows, they're not going to fall down and collapse and go away. Yeah, they might go bankrupt, but somebody else after we get through this will buy that venue and start doing shows in it because shows make money. The resource of the audience, people, the human race is not going to die. You know, we're going to get through this virus. We're going to get out on the other side and we're going to get back to assembling in mass. You know, it's a good reminder of like, you need to be clean. You need to like disinfect and everything else that goes along with nature that's out there. I think uh, sometimes people forget about that end of nature, but we'll get through that end of it. And the resources, they're still going to be there. The people are going to be there. The venues are going to be there. You can't replace human interaction. You can't replace that virtually. Like they're trying and people, you can do all these virtual talks and stuff, but there's something to be said about a concert or a performance or even just a trade show where you just hook up with people from different genres and have conversations and ideas that never would have happened unless you are put in that circumstance and that doesn't happen virtually. Like it doesn't happen because you, you have to get invited to those chat rooms and shit or you have to find them and the spontaneity of that isn't going to happen. And that's where like a lot of business happens, a lot of just culture, culture in general, we'll get through this stuff and 
you know, not to say it'll go back to normal, but there will be work again. And I've seen it just in some of the smaller jobs we've had during this, you know, we've had a couple jobs come up and, you know, I've done at least a hundred different outdoor structures for video walls for drive-in movie theater. So everybody wants that shit. And, uh, I've got it from 16.9 up to 100 by 56 different size video walls, like massive video walls to like little ones in parking lots, you know. And it's about trying to work with the clients and fit it in their budget and be there to help. And my philosophy is to stay relevant and help as much as you can now so that when we get through this and we will get through this, they'll remember who helped them. Right. And we'll just we'll get back to doing what we do, which is like do cool events. So. My advice is wear a mask, hunker down, and get through it because there's going to be a, another side of it. And I mean, and none of that's to take away from the fact that, you know, obviously, yes, there are people that we know who are mourning people who left us. There are people who got the virus and are still suffering with symptoms months after being released from the hospital. And that's not to minimize any of that. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, favorite uh, rock climbs you've had? Anything <laughs> like that? Oh, climbing. I don't even climb anymore. Like I, I don't consider myself a climber. I haven't considered myself a climber in years because uh, I don't even climb once a year anymore. It's, it's such a change of perspective from when I did climb, when I was avid climber in my 20s and early 30s. I climbed like every day. You know, I lived in my truck and climbed. These days, I'm, uh, you know, I own a company, got two kids, I have a family, you know, a beautiful family. I'm, I'm a lucky dude. Not that I believe in luck. There is no luck in rigging. (laughs) (laughs) If at first you don't succeed, perhaps rigging is not for you. (laughs) But what people that I've talked to, because a lot of people talk to me about it, you know, the loneliness, you know, the lack of work, it's not all just the lack of money from the work. It's the lack of purpose, right? Yes, absolutely. People need to have a sense of purpose and especially the people in our industry, because the people in our industry it's a labor of love. They love the job. We're not nine to fivers clocking in and out of a bank or receptionists or we're not like a typical business of nine to fivers. It's very passionate people that do it a lot of the time for the art and the fulfillment they get from contributing to see these unique things that we do, whether it's uh, a performance, a visual art piece, you know, or even these these trade shows that we do and the mass spectacle of them, the, the EDM concerts these days, you know, the environmental concerts that we get to do, that, that we, we create, you know, to be a part of that. That's something, you know, not having that in our lives, that's one of the hardest things I think that has hit our industry because we, there just is none. And the lack of purpose that way, the, the meaning... Because I find I have a lot of fulfillment in being a father and being a husband, and it's been great to have that time with them. But not having the gigs, the, the the jobs, the work, you know, the work is meaningful. You know, what we do has meaning, right? We're not making paper towels, you know. We're not like making auto parts or, you know, selling widgets. We're part of a machine that creates. A creative machine that way. And um, that's probably the most difficult part for the people in our industry to deal with. If people want to learn more about uh, BMW, if they want to see some of the stuff you've done, where can they go? BMW's on Facebook. We have BMW Rigging. 
on Facebook. We, I, I personally, I manage a Facebook page called Event Rigging Helper. It's got like 14,000 followers on it. Um, recently been getting into Instagram. I'm trying to keep up with the kids that way. <laughs> uh, and there's LinkedIn and we are our website, bnwrigging.com. I'm in the process of building out pages on that as well because got a lot of time on my hands right now. Um, so those are the places online virtually. And, uh, you know, we're on gigs in New York city. Ask around. Somebody knows us because <laughs> <laughs> it's all through reference. Like the, uh, all of our business comes from just like other people telling, Oh, you're doing something. You're doing something big. You need to go in the air. You should call BMW. Uh, we get we get referred a lot. Apparently, Cookie Monster is uh, doing promos for being. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's my idol. <laughs> uh, those that know me know I'm a I'm a Cookie Monster myself. <laughs> All right, thanks very much, Tony. Yeah, no problem, Jason. It's been awesome talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.